And thus finally ends the reading of God's word. Is that right, Carol? It's a lengthy old chapter, isn't it? Chapter 10, but important that we read it all, and that means I can just kind of skip to certain parts in the midst of it. Good morning, everyone. Uh, great to see you. Let me add my welcome to Kieran's. It's really great to see, uh, you know, an increasing amount of people in this building. What an excitement that is, and seeing all the children in here as well. Uh, it feels like we're almost getting back to some level of normal, and how good that is. Um, before I, we look at that passage that we've just read this morning, I do just want to uh, just mention three people particularly and ask you to pray uh, for them. Uh, yesterday, uh, earlier this year or even late last year, uh, Terry and Sue Wright joined our congregation. Uh, I hope you've had a chance to meet Terry and Sue. They're a, they're a wonderful couple. Um, they're a couple that I've known for many, many years. It's actually uh, Sandy Kershaw's uh, mum and uh, stepfather. But uh, yesterday morning, Terry passed away. Uh, a little unexpectedly. He was not well, but a little bit unexpectedly yesterday morning. And so uh, there's great grief as we reflect on that this morning and want to continue to keep Sue, particularly in our prayers, but also Sandy and Paul and the girls as well. Uh, I'll do that in just a moment. Uh, I also wanted just to mention Tammy Watson. Uh, we don't see Tammy Watson all that often because she is... Uh, her health conditions mean that she can't get here very often. Uh, but she had a, a serious fall last week where... Um, she hit her eye, and it looks like she's actually going to lose her eye altogether. And uh, so they're going to make a decision on that tomorrow. So be praying for Tammy uh, and ones like Pauline who kind of support her, uh, others as well, of course. Uh, and then Michael Smith. Uh, Becky Smith's been looking after our kids for years. Uh, Michael comes to evening church when he can. Uh, but he has been in hospital for a long time. Uh, they thought he may not go home, but he did. But he's gone back in hospital again yesterday. Um, for we don't know how long, and so just just difficult. So pray for Becky as she cares for her dad and for Michael as he goes through long stints in hospital. Uh, I'm going to pray for those things briefly before we hear God's word together this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we feel the weight of this world. Uh, we live in a broken world and we're, we're, we're not in any denial about that. The reality is that we live in a world that is rebellious against you, and lives under the curse of sin. And so, Father, death is, and, and sickness and illness is a part of our world. But we do suffer, but we do, do not suffer as those without hope. We're always reminded of that reality. And we just want to pray, particularly for Sue this morning, as she grieves the loss of her husband, Terry. We thank you for Terry. We thank you for his love of Jesus, his confidence and faith in you. And we pray, Lord God, uh, in thankfulness that he's in your hands. Uh, but we do ask, Lord God, for Sue and for Sandy and for Paul and uh, for Emily and Katie, that you would just comfort them with that great loss. We pray too, Father, for Tammy with the grief and the, the, the ongoing struggles she has with health. We pray, Lord God, particularly that doctors will make good decisions over what to do with her eye. Uh, we pray, Lord God, that you might protect her and keep her continuing to trust you in the midst of it all. And the same for Michael, Father, who has spent so many uh, months, years in hospital and uh, never quite knows when he's going to go come home or if he's going to come home next time. And so again, we pray, Lord God, that his faith might continue to hold fast to you. Thank you that he loves you dearly, uh, that his confidence is in you. Pray for Becky, Lord God, as she cares for him and has to deal with the weight of that uh, consistently. We just pray that you would uh, be with all these and others amongst our congregation who are suffering various things. 
We uh, entrust them to you as a good and loving and faithful God, the rock upon which we stand, the hope for all eternity. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And I should have prayed that God help us, but let's say that God helps us as well. Why don't we uh, look at this passage uh, from, we didn't read the end of chapter 9, but we will look at that as well as into chapter 10. Um, And can I just ask the question, are you prejudiced? Am I prejudiced? Uh, Is the question that I had to start with. Uh, I like like to think I'm not, uh, but I had a bit of a reality check a few months back. Uh, I was visiting a friend in Western Sydney. I had a little bit of time to kill, uh, and so I thought I'd just go to a cafe out there while I was waiting for the right time to get there. Uh, And so I went to a local shopping centre to grab a a coffee, find a cafe and have a coffee. But as soon as I walked in through the front doors, I realised that I was in unfamiliar territory. Uh, The smells were different. Uh, The style of shops were different. Uh, The clothing styles were different. Uh, There was a cafe there, but it didn't look like the kind of cafe that would have good coffee. Uh, And then all of a sudden it struck me, wow, here I am uh, venturing out of my little eastern suburbs bubble uh, for just a moment, and I find myself quickly looking down on people and places that I don't even know, uh, yet they are people who who just like me have been made by God in his image and who he loves dearly. Am I prejudiced? Australia has been a a multicultural, multi-ethnic society for uh, decades now. As Christians, we should be incredibly positive about that. And not just because it's kind of helped us move from the kind of, you know, Uh, meat and three veg kind of staple diet. I'm glad that that's kind of moved on. But uh, because of the Christian message, it's one that brings people together in unity. No matter what our race, our culture, our gender, our status in life. Now, of course, the idea of multiculturalism was to bring together a society from different laws and cultures, etc., hoping that we'd be able to live in harmony with one another. And in some ways, we've done really well. However, we've also found that there have been clashes in cultures. Uh, There have been times when we have struggled to live side by side in harmony. Uh, Our sinfulness at times results in our inability to get on or perhaps to look down on one another. And it may not always mean that we clash. It may simply mean an unwillingness to associate with one another because of our differences. Well, today we come to another incredibly important part in the book of Acts, and in fact, it's the final uh, in this particular series on Acts, which comes up to uh, chapter, end of chapter 10, beginning of chapter 11, if you like. And the cultural, the religious, the social and political bar- barriers between Jews and non-Jews or Gentiles, as we see in, in the beginning of Acts here, is possibly the biggest barrier that has ever been known between cultures. But God is not going to let that continue. Now, we're going to come to the details of that in a minute, but before we do, while this is a long passage, uh, here are the three things that I'm going to focus on. Firstly, we're going to focus on the Apostle Peter, who is the rock upon whom Christ would build his church. Remember, that's the promise that God made to Peter. Secondly, God himself is the universal missionary who does not discriminate. We've been hearing the gospel is unstoppable. It's unstoppable because God is the missionary. Thirdly, Jesus is the judge of all who offers peace to all. 
And first, let's uh, see, Luke turns his attention, or our attention, back to the Apostle Peter for a moment. You remember last week we had the dramatic conversion of Saul, who would become the Apostle to the Gentiles eventually. Uh, we saw that in the first half of chapter 9. But now the Apostle Peter is uh, back on centre stage. And the events in those last few verses of chapter, of chapter 9 serve, if you like, in a way, as Peter's preparation for his role in the kind of mind-blowing events of chapter 10 and following. Now, in fact, uh, all of chapters 1 to 9 have been all about, in some way, I think, Peter's preparation for what comes next in chapter 10. I, I don't know if you've ever watched those kind of crazy guys and girls who travel the world looking for the biggest waves to surf. Uh, they seem to me to have a death wish. But these guys are, aren't unprepared, can I say. I've looked into it a little bit. Uh, actually, they're thoroughly prepared for the enormity of what they're doing because waves that are that big can hold you underwater for a long time in a kind of a washing machine-like effect, and so they need to prepare for that. Uh, they train their lungs to be held disoriented underwater for minutes, and so they do things like, crazy things, right, like walking on the bottom of the ocean. It's a fun thing to do. Uh, holding boulders to keep you down for one minute, two minutes, maybe three minutes or more even, to train their breathing for a massive wipeout and hold down. And in a very tenuous link, in a sense, God has been preparing Peter. He doesn't go into this next encounter completely unprepared. And so God has been preparing him for the mission that he has given him, some of which he's still hasn't fully understood. And so in this last section of chapter 9, there are three things that continue Peter's uh, preparation to be the rock upon which Christ would build his church. And the first is the healing of Aeneas. I'm not quite sure how to say it, but I'm going to go with Aeneas. Uh, the apostles are travelling around preaching the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea, etc. And Peter comes to Lydda. Now you can see it there on the map, uh, just in from the coast. He comes across Aeneas, who has been crippled for eight years. And look at what we read in chapter 9, verse 34. And so Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Aeneas is, is a cripple. Uh, in Judaism, that meant he was an outcast. Unable to enter the temple, unable to come into God's presence. In fact, in Jewish thinking, uh, they used to think that somehow someone who was crippled was under the judgment of God. But Peter has seen Jesus Christ heal the sick, the lame, the outcast, and welcome them in. And so Peter calls on Jesus to heal this man. And the man who hasn't walked in eight years gets straight to his feet. And the result is, not that he can just walk, but that great numbers of people turn to trust in Jesus. And Peter gets that Jesus is breaking down barriers, that the gospel continues to transform lives. Here is the work of Jesus continuing in the book of Acts through the work of his apostles. Well, the second event happens a short distance away on the coast of Joppa, uh, just uh, out a little bit there from Lydda. Again, you see on the map, Tabitha is a, a deeply loved and godly woman. She's full of good works and she has died. And the disciples in Joppa realise Peter is not far away and they call for him to come. And when he arrives, Tabitha, uh, her body has been prepared for burial. 
And then in a scene that closely resembles Jesus' raising of of, uh, Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5, Peter prays, knowing that only God can raise the dead. And he does. Tabitha is raised to life. She will die once more. It's a resuscitation more than a resurrection like Jesus'. But the result once more in verse 42 is that many believed in the Lord. See, these two extraordinary events are intended to be signs that authenticate the Apostle Peter as a genuine Apostle of Jesus Christ who is continuing Jesus' ministry. See, people heard the word. They saw the signs and many believed. And Peter gets it, right? The gospel's power was greater even than death. Now, the final thing in this passage that prepares Peter is, and, and is showing uh, that he is beginning to get what Jesus is doing, is one little line right at the very end of chapter 9, verse 43. See what it says? And he, that is Peter, stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Simon, a tanner, was an unclean Jew. Uh, his job involved touching dead animals, uh, which made him ritually unclean. But notice that Peter gets it. He can actually stay with Simon now because the gospel has broken down that barrier. Being right with God is not about being clean or unclean. It's about trusting in Jesus. All of this, I guess, is part of God's preparation of Peter for what is about to come next. Because while Peter might get it for unclean Jews, what about unclean Gentiles? Well, this next event is going to convince Peter, I think, and us, hopefully, that God is the universal missionary who does not discriminate. And if you want to get a sense of the importance of this event, then you only really have to notice the weight that Luke gives to it. So we've just had four verses on a healing of a cripple. We've had eight verses on the raising from the dead. But he gives 66 verses to Cornelius' conversion here. Saul, uh, last week we saw the conversion of Saul. It might be the most famous conversion of all, but it's likely not the most important one. Cornelius' conversion to Christianity may be the most important conversion in history because Cornelius is the first Gentile, uh, the first non-Jew to become a Christian. You might be thinking, Ethiopian? What about the Ethiopian eunuch? Wasn't he a a Gentile? Well, actually, most people think that he was an a eunuch who was a Jew working as a foreigner. And so um, Cornelius is the first Gentile and the first non-Jew to become a Christian. And then he disappears from the pages of history. So you don't hear of him again, but nothing was ever the same after this event. If the gospel had not come to the Gentiles, then you and I would not be sitting here this morning. Christianity would be like a small Jewish sect like a growth on the rump of Judaism. You won't, of course, see this particular event written up in uh, regular history books. Uh, But the truth is, this event itself may actually be one of the most history-shaping events of all time. And so let's have a a look at it. Uh, In the first century, uh, as we've already heard, uh, this great chasm existed between Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews. Israel had been chosen by God out of all the nations of the earth to live separately from them. They would be his chosen people. God had made a covenant with them. Uh, And all the males were kind of circumcised as a mark of their contract with God. 
And then part of the covenant was this, bunch, this whole bunch of food laws that represented being clean or unclean. We read about it in Leviticus 11 or in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 14. And the reason given is that God is holy. That is, God is completely pure. He is completely apart from, separated from his creation as God, as creator and creature. And so as God's people chosen by him to be his representatives on earth, Israel were to be distinctive. And so Peter can't believe it when a Gentile is converted. It's actually a moment of cognitive dissonance. Had to look that one up. Anyway, um, in his mind, he knows that God is the God of the whole world. He's actually heard Jesus' command to take the gospel to all nations. But that God would accept Gentiles without them first becoming Jews, getting circumcised, keeping the law, etc. Well, that's not what Peter was expecting. But it's exactly why Peter and not Saul, had to be the apostle that took the gospel and baptised the first Gentiles. See, Peter gives it authenticity. Just as he authenticated the Samaritans uh, when they'd received the gospel, and he threw Peter and John as they went down there to see that they'd received the gospel and uh, through their laying of hands received the Holy Spirit, so we see the gospel coming for the first time and the receiving of the Spirit coming through the work of the apostle Peter. Now, Cornelius is a pagan Gentile. A centurion in the Roman army uh, in Caesarea. You can see again Caesarea is north there of Joppa uh, on the map. <clears throat> uh, he's a centurion, uh, but he's also a Joppa. And so he does. He sends a, de a delegation to go straight away and look for this guy called Peter. Uh, now at the same time, notice uh, God is preparing Peter, uh, the other part of the jigsaw puzzle, for something that he's not going to want to do to go into an unclean Gentile's house. And so God gives Peter a vision to get his attention. Uh, let's just pick it up again at the end of verse 10 there in chapter 10. <clears throat> uh, Peter fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. <clears throat> now there's a mixture of both clean and unclean animals in this vision that God gives to Peter. I'm not going to go into all the details of that right now. But Peter's, Peter's a Christian now. But he's also been a good Jew all of his life. And so he's never eaten what the Jews considered to be unclean. It's an interesting conversation here between God and Peter. Notice uh, verse 13, God says to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, uh, no, Lord, because I'm being obedient to you. Uh, you kind of see the irony there, don't you? God says to Peter, eat this, it's clean. And Peter says, to, says no, God, I'm doing what you tell me because I want to honour and obey you. No, he doesn't. Peter is, still thinks it's all about the law at this point in time. But there's an important lesson here in verse 14, even for us, isn't there? No and Lord should never go in the same sentence, really. No is never the right response to a God who calls on you to do something. But clearly, both Cornelius and Peter see God at work in their respective visions. 
And so by the time Cornelius' delegation arrives in Joppa, God, by his spirit, uh, in verse 19 we see there, has prepared Peter to go with, uh, with them back to Cornelius in Caesarea. Well, when they arrive, Cornelius, uh, well, says when Peter arrives back in Caesarea, um, Cornelius has gathered a crowd of his household, his relatives, his friends, and it's probably fair to say that Peter doesn't get off to a great start. Uh, have a look from verse 28 there. Uh, and Peter said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Now you can kind of feel Peter's discomfort at being in a Gentile's home for the first time against Jewish law. It's not really a great opening for a sermon though, is it? I don't really want to be here, but God says I should, so why have you sent for me? Uh, the great preacher of the gospel, the Apostle Peter, doesn't sound like he's all over it right here, does he? And so Cornelius uh, tells him about the vision that God gave him. And look at what he says there in verse 33. Cornelius says, So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And so finally Peter gets on a roll. Look at verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know, finally Peter realises that God is indeed impartial. He's not prejudiced in any way. He doesn't discriminate against anyone. He shows no favouritism to Israel or to anyone else. God's salvation is for every nation and for anyone who fears him. See, Peter now realises how true it is. It doesn't, however, stop him and those with him from being astonished over in verses 44 and 45 when the gift of the Holy Spirit actually is poured out even on the Gentiles. There's still a level of astonishment there. See, in the Old Testament, remember, uh, the Holy Spirit had only ever been given to the prophets. But in the New Age... The promise was that God's Holy Spirit would be poured out on all of God's children. See, Israel's national religion was over. Now there was an international religion with the Holy Spirit being poured out upon Gentiles. So you're not a Christian because you're born into it. You're a Christian because you believe the good news about Jesus. And so this was a, a mind-blowing moment. It was a history-altering event. God is not only the God of Israel. He's God of the whole world. So there's no race prejudice when it comes to God. So imagine how wrong it would be for us to show any form of race prejudice. As Christians, we must go out of our way to demonstrate our love for people no matter where they come from. So what's the point of being an Israelite? Well, in chapter 15, verse 9 in Acts, just a little bit further on, we're told that God makes no distinction between Jew or Gentile. Both Jew and Gentile alike are cleansed and come into God's family by faith in Jesus alone. There is no distinction. Christianity is not primarily a human movement. It's the work of God, the unstoppable God, 
He is the universal missionary. But notice that it's only through Jesus that God's salvation comes. Because Jesus, as we'll find out, is judge of all who offers peace to all. Now let's just pick it up at this final section, verse 36. Uh, let me read from there. As for the word that he, that is God, sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. He goes on, but let me stop there. You know, we sometimes wonder how to summarize or articulate exactly what the gospel is. Well, can I say this particular short sentence here is one of the clearest statements of the gospel that you will ever get. Peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You cannot celebrate peace without including the Prince of Peace. But the gospel is a message of peace through Jesus, who is Lord of all. There is no person in this world over whom Jesus is not Lord, whether they realise it or not, or whether they acknowledge it or not. And his message and his offer to you and to me, to the atheist to the agnostic, to the Buddhist, to the Muslim, to the secularist, to the Jew, to the Gentile. The message and offer is one of peace. And the way Jesus brings peace is what Peter goes on to explain in the following verses. The message of peace God sends to the world is a person. It's Jesus himself. See, the gospel message, message wasn't given to a bloke sitting in a cave writing things that came into his head. See verse 37? He says, You yourselves know, even these people up in Caesarea, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. What Jesus said and did was publicly and visibly available. It was therefore verifiable. It could be tested. And notice the three things about Jesus that Peter mentions. His life, his death, and his resurrection. In verses 38 to 39, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power and he went about doing good, healing the sick, casting out demons, bringing peace. You yourselves know. The coming of Jesus Christ was the arrival and the foretaste of the kingdom of God. And did you notice that the first thing that they built at Pedro Green, just across the road here, the great big American apartments over there, the first thing they built were the display units. Before any of the main building was really built, you could walk through the display units and get a sense of what was coming. They were a foretaste of what was the future of the Padrid Green Apartments, the glory that they are. I see them out my back window every day. But anyway, the life of Jesus, and there are people in there who need to hear about Jesus, right? So uh, the life of Jesus was a foretaste of the kingdom of God. Not just a forecast, it was Jesus coming into the world, bringing the kingdom of God, but reminding us and showing us what is coming when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Well, the second way that Jesus brings peace, he says, is through his death. And the reference here to Jesus hanging on a tree was a reference to him taking on the curse of God, because that is what it meant. But remember, the curse that he took was our curse. The death of Jesus pays the penalty for human sin not his own sin. And Peter is quick to show that death is not the end because God, he said, raised Jesus to life. And in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, we see there the Apostle Paul teaches that Christ's resurrection guarantees our future resurrection as well. And of course, 
Uh, Verse 41, all of this was witnessed by the apostles and by others. We saw him, Peter says. The risen Jesus ate and drank with us. This is eyewitness testimony. And here's the message that he commanded us to preach to all people. Look at verse 42. And he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. See, God has appointed Jesus to be judge of the living and the dead. Now, can I say, the living and the dead is a very comprehensive category. I'm guessing that everyone in this room fits into that category, uh, but there are others. So, in other words, no one will escape the judgment of Jesus. No one. Jesus is Lord of all and judge of all. And so if you're sitting here today thinking that this is irrelevant to your life, you need to think again. God's love for you has placed you in this room this morning so that you can know that he is offering you peace. Peace with him. Peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way. But for everyone, Christian, Jew, Islamist, Buddhist, atheist, agnostic, male, female, right-wing, left-wing, gay, straight, old, young, rich, poor, male, female, whatever you want to, distinctions you want to make in life, whether you're from Ireland or Asia or India, everyone, no matter who you are, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins, peace, life, through the name of the resurrected Jesus. Outside of the resurrection of Jesus, I know of no other hope for humankind. There has been a a drought of consistent gospel proclamation in our country for several decades now. The impact of secularism, trying to live life without God, in our society uh, has just left an incredible vacuum in our society. A vacuum that in turn, I think, is giving us a great opportunity to present the gospel the gospel of peace through Jesus Christ because he is Lord of all. No exceptions. No one misses out. Christ died for all. And so pray that God would wake us up to the opportunities that lie before us. One of the first, of course, is next week as we uh, celebrate Easter together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that there is peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. Father, thank you for the peace that you have given to us, those of us who have been able to put our trust in the Lord Jesus and bow our knee to you as our Lord and our Saviour. And Father, we continue to pray for those who don't know the Lord Jesus, whether they happen to be sitting in this room this morning, and if we are, we're so thankful that they are whether they're in our households, they're in our workplaces, in the school or the place that we study, whether it's our neighbour or our friend. Father, help us to know, let them know that God is offering them peace and life and forgiveness of sins through the Lord Jesus. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.